Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, as always, episode 195, Friday 25th of June 2021, and just another quick shout out for our 200th episode giveaway, basically send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com, and you are entered into the random draw for the for the prize pack, for the goodies pack, for the swag of fantastic prizes, including potentially a little extra prize or giveaway from Mark and myself, a little a little me- memento um, from from each of us, which we've yet to decide on. So vetgurus at gmail.com and the entries, Mark, they've, they slowed down a bit this week, so you've got an excellent chance of winning the giveaway if you send an email to us and i expect mark it will be well under 100 people and probably under 50 by the look of things so that we haven't had a huge amount of entrance for it so you've got a one in 50 one in 100 chance of getting a free giveaway prize pack posted anywhere in the world how are you mark i'm great brendan it's been a great day it's been a it's been a cold day here when we talk about the weather, um, as we tend to sort of wander off to in our pre show um, pre show chit chat and our little um, uh, we, we look at the we look at the news and we um, decide well we better put together something to talk about. But I'm going to do a review, Mark. I'm going to do a review. I did. I have been promising a review for the last. Um, tenth episode, and it's a it's an oldie but a goodie, Mark, and it's something that you use probably every day, if not every week, in your practice, and that is the Parks Doppler. Oh. We've mentioned it several times, many times, and it's always probably well, it is the first instrument or monitoring device. Fun. Fun, fun implement monitoring device that I recommend uh, if you're getting into unusual pets. And the reason why I say it's an oldie but a goodie is because I have the old Parks Doppler one and it hasn't changed in all those years, has it, Mark? <laughs> if you go out and look for the purchase of this particular product, it looks exactly the same. It looks a bit steampunky, doesn't it? <laughs> um, it's it's this little, little um, well, not little, a big box and it just has this um, little speaker on it and um, but it's reliable and it um, never lets me down. Mark, having said that, I bet you I'll turn it on when I get to work tomorrow and it won't work. <laughs> There are variations of the the Dopplers, aren't they, Mark? Do you have any of the other variations of of these types of units apart from the Parks one? We do have a couple of different ones, but the Parks one is the um, is the one we keep returning to for precisely the reason you uh, outlined. It's so reliable, and that gentle swishing noise of the blood flowing under the ultrasound uh, ultrasound um, probe. Um, it's exceptionally reassuring. Um, the only thing, and I'll be interested in your review, the only thing that um, that we've got to make sure is that we cover the, the probes themselves seem to be the weakest link. And more than once we've um, had very zealous, excellent 
support staff cleaning them and and they because they're on the end of the the cord they drop crack and don't work anymore so you've always got to make sure you've got those uh the probes covered just in case they get bumped against something so you don't break them and what do you use for that mark do you use the little plastic cover that they they come with we use the plastic cover and we have a foam cover that goes over the top of that we have a sock I have a custom-made sock for my Parks Doppler mark, which was made by the lovely people at the craft shop that um, is next door to my clinic, and they knitted a a little tiny probe sock, um, which it slips over it, and um, it was, um, and they gave it to me for free. Um, I, I wandered in one day with the with the probe, and I said, I need a little cover for this. And they, they, once they'd stopped hysterically laughing, they said, we can do something. And a week later, this um, little sock appeared, um, this knitted sock that's a, a miniature little sock. And as you can imagine, the, the probes are what, one, one centimetre square or so. <laughs> yeah. um, and it fits perfectly. And it's been doing a fantastic job. Um, so I don't know whether there'd be much of a market, much of a market for it, Mark. But um, yeah, I was. I, I was tell you what, I that. think every, if, the, if there may not be much of a market, but um, everyone that does have a Doppler would dearly love to make sure they don't break the probe because it is frustrating. Um, outside of that, though, the damn things are just. I know it's that calm reassurance of the gentle swoosh of blood makes makes uh, makes doing surgery better, Brandon. Yes, yes, and I, if I remember, I'll try and post a picture of the the little probe sock mark on our on our website for this this week's episode. So I give it a nine out of ten mark. Um, I don't give it a ten out of ten because of it, it is a little bit a little bit bulky there, and it'd be great if they had a, a smaller unit. But it's certainly um, reliable, that's for sure, and um, it's the one piece of equipment I I, I love um, as far as the monitoring equipment. So there you go, the Bahark Doppler mark. That's my review. It's good to have a few. I like our reviews. I think uh, is is your understanding that our we get a good bit bit of positive feedback from the reviews. Are they a segment of the podcast that people look forward to? Yes, and some people enjoy non veterinary reviews, so they enjoy the the film reviews or the other reviews, books, games, whatever, um, photography sort of things. Um, and and then we get other. People send us an email and say, um, stop reviewing those things. Give me some vet reviews. <laughs> you can't please everybody, Mark. But, yes, as a general rule, they um, it is positive, the, um, the feedback from them. And speaking of positive, I want to talk about wasabi, Mark. Now, uh, I don't know whether this is a positive story or not. I'm a bit ambivalent about this one. So my one and only news story is... Was from a, a, a um, one of our researchers, um, a, a um, fairly new researcher to our um, podcast, um, and hello to him or her or they or them, and um, they provided this particular article: um, Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. Mark Wasabi, the Pekingese, was the best in show out of two and a half thousand champion dogs, and. As the article goes on to say, um, and lots of puns in it, Mark, the flavour of the year was wasabi and the Pekingese won best in the show, notching a fifth ever win by the unmistakable toy breed. And a whippet named Bourbon was runner-up. Um, and it goes on about some of the other um, entrants in the show, etc. Um, and the show was bittersweet for, for, for a couple of the – one of the handlers went when, when, – um, um, 
um, one of the one of the dog's um, fathers um, died unexpectedly of a, a fungal infection. Mark, um, um, which was Jade's father, for um, one of the other other um, other things. But I'm not going to read the whole article because I want to be punchy this week. And I, what do you think about these dog shows, Mark? Is 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 my question to you? And do you think we should be encouraging these these what do they call these things? This, this, I was going to say something I shouldn't there. This thing they call breed standards, Mark. Um, what do you think about this whole whole process? Well, Brendan, my thoughts are that um, it's a, a <laughs> idealised human perception of what an animal should look like. It's a bit of a fashion. The, the, the idealised human perception changes over time and... Um, and I don't know that that changing ideal has ever been a target that um, that represents good health for the animals. I noticed that um, in the story. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to one of these, Mark? Have you ever been to a local dog show? And and have you been a judge at any of these? I've never judged. I have been to a show. I haven't been to Westminster, of course. Um, but um, but I I don't look. It's very interesting. The dynamic that happens there, I know a lot of the people that uh, show dogs, it's sort of like such a critical social thing in their life. Um, and I think that's part of the, and I know it varies, some people less so, some people more so, but um, the people part of it seems to become a focus more than the dog part of it. The dogs end up being a vehicle for various egos and, and other agenda um, and what's best for the dog doesn't always come to the fore. Um, it was interesting that um, uh, Wasabi's um, gr- grandfather, um, Malachi, was a uh, Westminster title in 2012. And, geez, Brendan, I struggled to believe that of all the dogs that could attend Westminster, that one family produces two dogs that are the champion dog of all dogs. Oh, do you think there's a bit of money going under the table at some stage? A bit of politics going oh, on I don't, yeah, wouldn't Well, I'm not making any accusations here. wouldn't want to get the the uh, our podcast into any legal trouble, but I just note that that's a statistically very surprising thing. Yes. And the other thing that I find semi-fascinating, Mark, is you're talking about the humans and and you know some of these outfits that they wear and it's um lots of sparkle Mark, <laughs> lots of sparkle now what do you think the process with that is they're trying to attract um you know the judges they they, they see the sparkly glitter on the on the um human so they so they'll mark them up a bit for yeah. for the dog they're trotting around well it's interesting isn't it the photograph um in the article with um with a, a striker and um, and even the next competitor in the background of that photo, their outfit has a, I don't know, there seems to be a lot of glitter sparkle going on there. Um, I don't know. I don't, you would think, you would think in a perfect world that um, the handler would be like the umpire in an outstanding game of um, sport, disappear into the background and not be noticed and all your attention would just be on the perfection of the dog. Uh, I don't know that that's the way it actually works in these shows. The other thing that surprised me about this was um, the Fox, Fox Sports. 
um, ran the the program on on that network, and so there were sports reporters talking to the um, handlers and uh, creating a, a television show. Um, yes, yes. I don't know. I, I I think I probably just recorded if I was uh, <laughs> wanting to watch it and just fast forward through some of the maybe to the final result there. Yeah, and I'd I'd be very interested to see whether a Melbourne a Melbourne person as one mark because I don't I think they'd just be having the Melbourne look and they'd be all in black and um, perhaps they wouldn't um, be able to win because they haven't got sparkles, sparkles on them. They could have yes. magic though. <laughs> yes, they could. So, what's your news story, Mark? My news story is, um, as is often the case, uh, a uh, one that um, also has a little bit of an environmental bent. Um, uh, our our uh, wonderful. Um, new um, research team has come up with this story from the ABC. Um, the critically endangered bum-breathing turtles have been found in the water catchment where um, gas giant Santos hopes to, uh, well, empty some water from their, um, their industrial activity. So gas giant Santos has lodged a plan to release untreated coal seam gas wastewater during flooding events into a river system that uh, has been recently discovered to uh, uh, be the habitat of two uh, turtle species that are recognised for their strange behaviour of, well, not that strange, I suppose, if you, um, if you, uh, if your survival improves by being able to stay underwater for longer, um, you would take every opportunity to extract all the oxygen that you possibly could. And if uh, the mucosa of your um, cloaca was a suitable gas transfer surface, you would do it. Um, and so the critically endangered white-throated snapping turtle and the vulnerable Fitzroy River turtle both occur in that drainage basin, um, the upper Dawson, uh, um, the upper part of the Dawson River. And uh, and so, of course, there will be a little bit of, um, you know, confrontation between uh, um, wildlife preservation society members and. Uh, and obviously the the uh, officials from Santos. Um, they are, I have to admit, they don't intend for this to be a regular thing, a routine thing, and the limited release of water during flooding events would be mon- monitored and uh, they're confident, uh, the um, representatives of Santos, um, that... Uh, that such water would simply be overflow and even though it's untreated, it would not be dangerous. But I'm not... Casting, I'm not casting any aspersions on those fine gentlemen and women, but I would prefer that they didn't dump their mining waste into the rivers. Bum breathers, Mark. Yes, that gets you every time, doesn't it? That's, <laughs> Such a great that, um, headline. Head in there. Yes. And those snapping turtles, I tell you what, I've, I've dealt with some alligator snapping turtles um, in my time, and you've got to be careful of that. Um, beak on them they, they'll take your finger off if you're not careful and um, they're pretty nasty aggressive um, turtles mark have you um, been up close with any I have, of those i've not been up close with the alligator snapper but um but i have seen some footage where appendages have gone missing from careless behavior around them you do have to be careful yes yes so I don't think I've got a segue into our main topic uh, from bum breathing, Mark, but we've got another bird topic. Um, for those 
avian veterinarians and veterinary nurses technicians. Uh, we're going to talk about broken bones, aren't we, Mark? So what particular types of broken bones are we going to sort of hone our focus to this week, Mark? Well, I was pretty keen to uh, spend a bit of time talking about um, pet birds in particular and talk about um, some of the long bone fractures that we get to see, I, mainly the wings, but um, we'll, we'll touch on both the, the, uh, the legs and wings. The appendicular skeleton, Brendan, we're going to have a bit of a yarn about some aspects of uh, breaks in that part of the body. So do you see these very often, broken bones in these birds? And, and the second part, part two of a two-part question, mate, um, how are they usually broken? We do see them very, very often. And they probably, the fractures occur most commonly by misadventure within poorly designed enclosures. So um, birds might uh, get their wings caught in inappropriate patterns of uh, wire. You know, the, the, the wing gets caught in the wire, the bird can't get it out, it gets uh, wedged in a particular location. In their panic and the massive strength they can apply through the pectoral muscles, they uh, bring unreasonable uh, pressures onto the bones and end up fracturing them. We occasionally see birds, much like uh, the injuries we see in some wild birds who uh, careen into hard surfaces, Um, we'll see uh, some of our uh, pet birds do the same thing inside. They're clumsy, inexperienced flyers and um, crash into things. And so we might see coracoid fractures. Um, but uh, the main cause would be poor design in enclosures leading to misadventure. One other thing that uh, that commonly happens are leg rings. Um, a lot of the identification rings that go on birds' legs actually only serve a purpose within an aviary facility. Um, and so they provide no additional benefit outside of uh, the aviary from which the birds come from. Um, but we very often see the, the metal ring provide a particular focus for bad enclosure design and, and end up getting caught somewhere and, and uh, providing a, another reason the birds panic and take off with the legs stuck in the ring. And removing those rings of Removed a few in my time, Mark, especially when I was working as a zoo vet, not much these days, but it's always sort of a hold your breath um, period, isn't it? No matter what technique you use to remove those rings, whether you're using sort of, you know, pliers on both sides or you're cutting the, the, the opposite side of where the little little gap is, etc. Um, it's always a bit of a, I hope I don't slip here and end up breaking the leg. It's And definitely it's one of the, the real... Um, uh, uh, um, dissonance uh, situations where the member of the public thinks it's the barest, simplest, cos- almost uh, barely a cosmetic procedure when um, when it really takes a fair bit of um, uh, technical and practical coordination to get the whole thing just right and not cause a problem. Some of the worst ones are the, you know, a lot of the larger um, parrots will have stainless steel leg rings, uh, um, closed leg rings put on them. Um, and those things are, you know, very, very difficult to remove. They're, 
they're highly likely. I would, uh, I don't know the precise statistics, but I would bet that um, something of the order of one in 20 of the birds that have those over the course of their life end up with a serious injury or fracture as a consequence. So it's worth getting them off, um, but they are, like you said, bit scary, worth holding your breath and getting right. Yes. So getting back to the main topic, the, the other <laughs> main topic, which was, well, we're talking about breaks. Um, what species do you most commonly see in these pet birds that are affected that come in with these broken limbs? Oh, well, the most common one we see, uh, probably the, the cockatiels, but, um, if, and that's probably a, a function of two things. They're very common pets to start with, but they also have, particularly, um, you know, disproportionately long wings and tails compared to their body size. And so that affords them the opportunity of that extra leverage and, um, and tends to lead to a situation where they might break a bone. The other thing about cockatiels is that being desert birds, they'll survive on really poor quality diets, um, but those diets will have a calcium depositing uh, you know they'll they'll have a metabolic bone disease effect, and and often the weakness of the bones as the birds age can be one of the the uh, um, uh, the, the the causes. The weakness in those bones can be one of the causes these fractures occur. I mean, young birds they tend to be pathological folding type fractures, but in a in an older bird, a female entering a phase of reproduction where she wants to rip some more calcium out of those bones. Um, uh, uh, birds like cockatiels that uh, are highly hormonal and um, maybe on a poor diet but still not uh, suffering the worst consequences, those birds are overrepresented. So funnily enough, a lot of this gets back to the our usual comment about husbandry. And, and it is, it's, I know that we sound like a broken record repeating the same uh, general principles over and over again, but it bears emphasising that um, these are, generally speaking, um, fractures of captive management that, as I said, the design of the enclosure, the uh, behaviour of the birds, the, the um, nutrition that um, creates a, a altered calcium environment within those bones, all those things are things that are, you know, within our scope of ability to manage and change. So you, you are entirely right for pointing that out. And speaking of metabolism, Mark, you wanted to touch on briefly about that how the callus forms in birds and the sort of changes you do or don't see on a radiograph compared with, I suppose, let's say mammals, for instance. It's a good comparison to make, Brendan, because when we see a fracture in a bird, there's an evolutionary pressure on a bird to uh, become mobile once again as quickly as possible. That if you're a bird that has a, uh, a, a humeral fracture or, um, whatever you're, you want it to heal quickly so you can fly again because you're at an immense disadvantage while you can't fly. So most birds have their fractures heal much more quickly than we would expect, um, you know, a dog or a cat or, or a rabbit for that matter to heal. Um, so where we would normally expect in those mammalian species a four to six week sort of healing period, in most birds we're talking 12 days to maybe 20 days uh, and the fractured bone is likely to be approaching some form of functional return to normal. The interesting thing, though, is that callus that forms is a 
um, is not a bony callus at that point. If you take a splint off a bird or uh, have a look at a bird that's um, uh, two or three weeks out from its fracture, the bones will look like they're completely unattached. But if you're very careful with your palpation, you will find that a vast majority of them uh, have significant, if not complete, functional healing. So the radiographs, while they're useful, um, they're not a determinant for us to, you know, to say, okay, that hasn't healed, we've got to keep going. And in fact, being guided by the radiographs and maintaining uh, fixation or external coaptation may start to interfere with the muscles and uh, um, and the amount of calcium that's deposited into that and impede healing. So um, being aware that the radiographs will not be a good guide to the strength of callus formation is a good thing to be aware of. So what's your bottom line with that, Mark? How do you then decide, forgetting about um, the next bit about the actual types of fixation that we may consider with them, how do you make that decision? Okay, we're going to stop with our with our um, fixation, whatever the method that is, whether it's no fixation, bandages, internal, external, and say, okay, this 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 limb is healing. It's it's difficult, and um, and and it is a little bit of a, an art that draws in several factors. But I probably depend most heavily um, on on gentle palpation that we would remove the um, the. Um, you know, let's say we start with external coaptation, we would um, remove that under a general anaesthesia um, and and gently feel around, make sure that we can feel some soft tissue bump there, um, then start to um, make a bit of a decision about, you know, if it's a, a limb fracture, we would be much more confident that we could take that off and, and even if the fracture hadn't reached peak strength, that we weren't going to um, have problems with a, a recurrence. We're a bit more cautious with wind fractures because the... Um, immense forces that if the bird does start to flap, um, then uh, then we're likely to see a weakened bone fracture again. <coughs> so um, so it, take a few factors into account, but start with feeling the bone and and seeing if uh, there's any movement still at the fracture site. And I think we need to reiterate that we're talking about pet birds here too. So we're not talking about potentially wild birds that need to be fully functional um, in order to be released, Mark. So as far as the actual fixing that broken limb, leg, wing, how do we go about it? And what are the sort of, uh, let's do an overview. Or, well, just or let's quickly before you do. Mark, provide an overview. I will, I will. But I was going to quit. You made a good point that, um, you know, obviously with wild birds, we want to have them flying perfectly and any compromise would be a, a bit of a problem. But um, that's not the case with most pet birds, even if they flew a bit wonky or maybe couldn't fly at all, a, a healed and pain-free wing is not going to be a problem for them. But if you're ever dealing as a veterinarian with uh, aviculturists, um, that's a different thing that many of the birds that have fractures may not be able to contribute to the reproductive population. They might have a degree of arthritis in a leg fracture that means that they can't, you know, a female bird might not be able to maintain the weight of the male bird mounting or the male bird may not have the dexterity as a result of a fracture to mount. So even though 
we want, uh, we're happy with most pet birds to have maybe less than ideal, complete, perfect uh, anatomic reduction and uh, perfect function afterwards. Um, it's worth talking to clients that are aviculturists that uh, we may have a bird that is healed and pain-free that can't contribute to the breeding population. So the sorts of, um, the, you were talking about the sorts of fixation that we might use, and unsurprisingly, it's the same as other species. We would, um, we'd certainly would assess the fracture to see if it uh, required rigid internal fixation. Um, and a number of uh, finger plates or um, uh, uh, most commonly we'd use some sort of tie-in fixator, an external fixator that's a hybrid fixator they're sometimes referred to as with a um, an intramedullary pin that's bent around in a C-shape um, and then part of that bent iron pin acts as the, the, uh, um, uh, the, the uh, external rod for a couple of cross pins. Um, that works very well. So we'd... we'd Definitely use those techniques. We often um, are using uh, um, uh, structures like um, Altman casts or Altman splints. The, the technique there is we particularly use these a lot for limb fractures where um, we'd uh, use some tape, uh, put um, two pieces of tape face-to-face, uh, -face, trapping the leg between them, um, often using uh, one of the cohesive ones, Coflex or something like that, um, and then uh, soak the resulting um, sandwich with the fractured leg in the middle with uh, methyl methacrylate, uh, maybe even using super glue to create a relatively rigid miniature cast. Um, and those ones work uh, particularly well, and they tend to work um, even if the birds have a chew at them, they tend to last for the requisite uh 10 to 20 days um, and even in certain circumstances we've been able to um, oyster shell them clam shell them pull them apart and then put them back together and re-glue them in those birds that uh, need you know an extra four or five days and are there any particular regions that you would or would not recommend that particular technique of course in the particularly it's always a struggle for us with the hind leg because the um the the uh um femur obviously is almost in a way we think of as being internal um you cannot get a, a excellent external coaptation um over that part of the the um of the leg and um and if you try um you'll probably just end up focusing all those forces at the fracture site and ensuring that it doesn't heal so um those radiographs that you take um when the bird first comes in to identify the location of the fracture um they're critically important to make sure you don't uh, try and put one of those splints or casts on a leg and uh, make it worse Rubs also tend to be a little bit of a problem with those high, you know, the ones that you've got to get up high, uh, even if it's um, low on the femur and you're trying to get some uh, um, uh, some structure around to support the leg, um, it, it can be very difficult to do so without um, generating significant rubs and cuts that uh, may compromise healing. So would you be trying to, with most of those Altman-type ones that you mentioned, um, ideally leaving that on for the whole period, I assume? Um, 
are there any any situations where you think, gee, this one, I will be rechecking it or removing that and doing your clamshell technique, as you mentioned, um, halfway through? I do think that, um, and whether, you know, this is a species-wide thing. It's not just restricted to birds. I think the general public has a little bit of a expectation that, you know, um, a cast is going to be less expensive and less worry than uh, most surgical corrections. Um, and yet those of us in the know know that um, a significant portion of external co-optation cases end up with some serious rub or complication um, as a result of that device. Um, and so just watching them very closely, the birds that are more mobile, the birds that um, uh, tend to be... Um, you know, lorikeets are the classic example for us that are relentless in moving around and and don't tend to, um, once they've got pain relief on board, don't tend to uh, leave those things alone, the monkeys, bird monkeys that they are. Um, they tend to have serious complications. And so we'd be um, maybe putting some form of Elizabethan collar, a soft foam, um, you know, uh, brace around the neck to to prevent them easily getting to the thing and and uh, chewing their leg around it. Excellent. And what other are there any other sort of methods we could stabilise these broken bones? Mark? Well, if you look in the literature, there's a whole range of um, of various uh, supporting bandages. But the one I wanted to mention today was the. Uh, the one that we use most frequently, and that's the the one that we refer to as the uh, full body figure of eight bandage, um, and uh, and I'm a bit of a, um, geez, I must be worse at it than most people, Brendan, because the major I get uh, routinely place these things with when the birds are anaesthetized. Um, the target, of course, is to uh, start at the carpus and begin a figure of eight around the wing and then extend that uh, um, two-part wrap around the body to hold the, the wing in position against the side of the body. Um, and it often takes me two or three goes to get the wing in a relatively normal position. Um, and the less normal it is, the more it's going to upset the bird and the less well the bird will tolerate it. And I want it to be, this is one of the real arts, I think, to this stuff, that having it tight enough that the bird feels comfortably restricted, but not so tight that you interfere with the the uh, excursions of ventilation, um, it can be a real balancing act. And I probably find that, um, you know, one in four or five of them, I'm knocking the bird out a bit later on to tighten it up because I've been a bit uh, um, over-conservative in my efforts to allow the bird to continue to breathe. You've been a bit slack, in other words. <laughs> and it always, it always comes back when you're slack. Yes, it's an art, isn't it? Um, at, at deciding what the what the tightness or not for those sorts of um, figure of eight bandages are. It's regardless a, of what species or any bandage in any, any animal, isn't it? But it's an experience thing too, isn't it? And I one of that's one of the things that um, I encourage. Uh, our staff and and all our listeners to um, this is one of those things where knock the bird out, put it in place, put a, a, a figure of eight in place, um, let the bird wake up and and uh, see how settled it is, and and don't be afraid of changing it around. Um, I've been privy lately to a couple of um, uh, excellent veterinarians I work with who are much much better at at this than I am, and will place a figure of eight 
splint on a bird in a conscious bird and um geez they they do an outstanding job but in my experience i i seem to get the best long-term results if i um uh anaesthetize the bird, place it, watch the bird's recovery. And if I'm at all confused, if I think it's just not right, if it's not sitting in the correct position, um, then I do it again, Brendan. I, I just keep trying harder. Yes. <laughs> and, well, that's a great little summary there, Mark, of, of the approach to fractures of, of the appendicular skeleton in pet birds. Are there any sort of closing comments you would like to make? There is one I was keen to make, and that is um, just when you're talking particularly relatively minor fractures of the proximal humerus. The humerus is a pneumatized bone, um, and we've been caught a couple of times um, just treating them like, you know, um, shoulder fractures, putting the, the birds, giving them a, a figure of eight bandage. Um, and, um, and, and I don't know, I don't know that I can tell you the exact dynamic, uh, or even if it's a consistent single reason. Um, but I suspect there's some bizarre change in airflow that starts to affect the birds. And, um, and we've had a couple of those birds with what we thought were, um, uh, well, bad fractures to start with but the birds were two or three days into a recovery um and then they um they uh um get into trouble i do think that some of those birds have uh coracoid fractures that we might not uh, necessarily have picked up in our initial radiograph and those coracoid fractures we well know can slice open a trachea and render the bird um uh, unable to breathe relatively quickly you were going to say something. Mm. 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 No, I wasn't. Um, but my tip is, well, yes. whenever you're uh, dealing with a client that has a bird that has a, a, a proximal uh, humerus fracture or anything to do with the shoulder, just be very cautious. Warn them about their, their significant metabolic costs to those uh, fractures, and they can be um, very complicated uh, um, recoveries. Humorous factors ain't funny, Mark. <laughs> and with that, Mr. Outro has kicked in and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.